Uh, we're going to read the scripture. Ross is going to read for us. You don't have to listen to my voice the whole time. We're reading a large chunk, most of six, all of seven. Genesis 6, 9 to 7, 24. So, yeah, follow along and then we'll unpack it. Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. And all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark inside. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also you will take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send a rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and everything that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all the Lord had commanded. Noah was six hundred years old when the floods of the waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of the clean animals and of the animals that are not clean, and of the birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of that month, on the day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened, 
and the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and Noah, sorry, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, the creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the faces of the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. to the sound of the rainfall, we are reminded of this great story in history. The story of your holiness being profaned among the nations. The story of your wrath being poured out. The story of a new beginning, Lord, of your mercy and grace towards mankind as you reserve a remnant. Father, we be humble as we think about your minds, we grow in the knowledge of your holiness. Would we meditate on the greatness of your mercy? Will we have our own opinions? But our wisdom is folly compared to yours. We see the world differently to the way you see it. Lord, would you align our eyes to see how you see? Would we feel the weight of the depravity and the world of the world, but also the greater weight of your grace that you've shown us in Christ Jesus? That the floodwaters of your wrath may wash over the world, but in Christ he consumes them all. What a great 
message, Lord, of your salvation in Christ Jesus. We need your spirit this morning. I ask you to humble us, humble me, Father, that we may understand you and your work. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, don't fear, uh, we won't preach exactly verse by verse, we will preach the meaning of the whole story. What we see is Genesis 6 is really the foretelling of what God's going to do because of the depravity that's in the world, because of those Nephilim that we've seen, the demonic children of man and uh, demonic influence of angels, men and, and the daughters of men. And now we see God's go forth and pronounce judgment upon the world, judgment by flood, but also salvation, and then in chapter 7 we see that fulfilled. So we're looking at the story foretold and then the fulfillment, uh, and it would be, we could continue preaching through smaller chunks, but I think we'd end up repeating ourselves quite a lot. So if you were there asking even non-Christians today about the stories in the Bible, I think you will, uh, you, you'll come out hearing that most people uh, know the story of Noah. When people ask me where I got my name from, I can at least say it's the son of Noah, and most people go, oh, oh yeah, I know that story. Uh, if you were to ask them, they would understand maybe that Noah was some sort of a hero who built an ark. Maybe they know that animals went in two by two. Maybe they know that the flood was a global thing, and there's something about a promise and a rainbow. Some people would know that. Some people may only know the name Noah. But when you come to ask them if they understand the meaning of the story, particularly even if you come to ask Christians about the meaning of the story, I think what we'll find is that most people will come up with an answer of something like, well, Noah's a good dude, we should be more like Noah and less like the rest of the world, and God's really angry and we should tick God off. Moralism is what we probably would sum up the story. And the reason being is most people hear the story of Noah as children in Sunday school. And it's mostly taught by teenagers. And we get this image of an ark which looks more like a holiday or a resort than a filthy, dirty boat with all sorts of animals in it. And we get this image of the ark on the water with crystal clear, a crystal clear ocean and a beautiful rainbow above it and all the animals have smiles and it looks like this pleasant resort place to go. But really what's going on is the water would have been murky, bodies would have been floating for the, at least the first part of it, the boat would have stunk and the rainbow didn't come until the end. And they were on it for maybe um, over 300 days, so close to a year. The story of Noah is not really about Noah at all, but it's about God. And if we are to give a moralistic message to be more like Noah and less like the world and don't tick off God, we have a very misunderstanding of God, a very misunderstanding of this passage. To some degree, it's true that we should be more like Noah and less like the world. We should have faith like Noah had faith. That is the message of Hebrews 11, which we'll get to at some point. But God is the true hero. When we looked at our overview of Genesis, it was all about God. In the first chapter, God is mentioned ten times. It's about what God says, and when God speaks, it happens. That was the same in creation, it's the same in judgment. 
as we see today in this passage. It's about God and His holiness, God and His just justice, God and His mercy. Holy in that He cannot live among the wicked and the wicked cannot dwell near Him. Just in that when He judges the wicked, it is right and good. And merciful in that even when He decreates, He promises a recreation. Whether that be Noah or whether it be Christ later, which is the fulfilment of the Old Testament. We can see here that God is a judge. He is the ultimate judge. His verdict, verdict on mankind stands. It doesn't matter what our opinion is about the world. It doesn't matter what our judgment is on people or anyone else. It's about God's judgment. That famous bumper sticker you see, only God can judge me, is almost like a brag that people have on their cars. I will tremble at the thought that only God can judge me. Because God is not going to spare you because you think that he agrees with your lifestyle. As we see here in Genesis 6, Genesis 7, yes, only God can judge. And his judgment is severe and his judgment is right. His judgment is that all sinners deserve death. And that is a fair judgment. So when we finish sharing our story, where should we land? If we were to think about sharing the story of Noah, what would we want people to take away from? Praise. A fear of the Lord, as the Proverbs tells us. The flood should leave us to tremble before God, the fear of His, his wrath and holiness, the weight of Him being holy and us being unholy, yet it should lead us to worship as He freely provides a way of salvation. There's this great line as we get to this passage that I just want to point out to us now. And it says about the flood coming and then immediately in verse 14, uh, let me just find it here. Seven or seven. Chapter 6, verse 13. And the Lord said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. So judgment upon the world, right? Confirm this, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then verse 14, make yourself an ark of Goshen. Go for go for This beautiful picture of God's just judgment upon the wicked, that they will perish, that they will be destroyed, balanced with his mercy immediately. And this is what we see in scripture all along. God's judgment is right. But his remnant, his mercy is always there as a picture of God's ultimate purpose of having a people for himself. So let's unpack this. We're going to start in verse 9. I'll give some overviews of the uh, verses we miss, which are more about detail, but we're going to try and focus on the main message of this passage. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jacob. We start with this opening line, that bridging type, that bridging line that we've seen a couple of times before. This is in chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens. We're transferred from the creation of the world to a creation of an intimate dwelling place of God in Eden. 
Then we see it in chapter 5. These are the generations of Adam, moving from Adam all the way to Noah. And now, these are the generations of Noah as we move from Noah through the flood to post-flood life. And it's a transition. It's to remind us that things are going to change. Things change from the creation of the world to the creation of a specific dwelling place of God. Things change from the line of Cain, the depravity that Cain brought as a murderer and liar, to the line of Adam, God going back to Adam and saying, you will have a descendant that will be my, uh, that will bring in my ultimate offspring. And now, we see the world is going to change again. Right now, the world is this demonized world, a world in which the occult worship of Satan is moving with great prevalence. Whether it be in false idols, whether it be in religions that may be still around today, they were worshipping Satan. And in so doing, we saw that through the power of these fallen angels possessing man and having children with the daughters of man, we saw powerful beings created. This is not absurd. We believe in a virgin birth, we believe in the resurrection of Christ, we believe in the New Testament possession of uh, people where they break chains and live in caves. And this is what is going on, but it is a consuming of the depravity of man. This is the lowest point of human history. Lowest point. The world is not like what this is. This was back then. I believe the world is different. Right now, everyone is in this place except for Noah and a few of his descendants that will be still around, or his, his ancestors that will be still around, it were in a place of idolatrous worship of Satan, and therefore they were consumed with the power of Satan, seeing great and marvelous things by these Nephilim, the name meaning fallen ones. So although they had mighty powers, although they may have been stronger than the average man, although they were men of renown, the scripture says they were nothing, they were fallen ones. And it's because of this state, this depravity of the world, this obsession with the demonic influence of the time, that, that, that God has said, I will wipe this clean. And what we see go forth is a lesser power of Satan in a world of the uh, Tower of Babel and so forth through Abraham's line. So the generations of Noah, we swap from the Nephilim and an interesting comparison between the Nephilim and the corrupt society, the corrupt nation, corrupt world, to this man who is described in three different ways as righteous, blameless, and walked with God. Now up to this point in Scripture, we haven't seen anyone referred to as being righteous and blameless. We have seen the phrase, they walked with God, in the man Enoch, who did not die, but was taken by God before death, after 365 years. So we need to do some work in understanding what does it mean to be righteous in the Old Testament? What does it mean to be blameless? Because right here in Scripture we can turn to a dozen passages on the spot that tell us that no man is righteous and no one's blameless. So when it says that Noah is righteous and blameless, how do we understand this? Well, in order to understand the scriptures, we need to read it in context of the passage, but in context of the whole message of scripture. That's why we hold to a systematic theology, a theology that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And when we hold to a theology that runs through the whole scripture, we'll start to see 
how different passages make sense when we understand uh, what it says in Genesis 15 about righteousness and what it says, of course, in the New Testament, particularly the book of Romans. But right here in this reference to being righteous, it really means that he was a good man. In the Hebrew, when they wrote this man was righteous, it's the same as saying, oh, that's a good bloke. We would define a good bloke as someone who maybe works, they are kind, they look after their family, they do all the right things, they're a good bloke. That's pretty much what's being said here in Hebrew about Noah. He's a righteous man, he's a good bloke. The next line but makes it a bit more tricky, blameless. To be blameless means that he's upheld the whole law, the whole moral law of God. He has not faltered on the law of God. Well, that can't be true. We know that Noah, immediately, when he gets off the boat, builds a vineyard, and as Adam did, sins by taking of the fruit in an unholy manner and getting drunk. So was Noah blameless before the flood, and then after the flood, suddenly sin came in and he became un and he became sinful? I don't believe that is the case. I believe Scripture makes very clear from Genesis, from Genesis 5 that Noah was a descendant of Adam, a descendant of Seth. Adam had Seth in his own likeness. That means he bears the image of God, but also the image of the depraved man. And Noah followed that line as well. So yes, he is an image bearer of God, but he is also depraved. So how is he blameless? Well, as I said, we must understand the teaching of the whole scripture. A blameless person is one who has faith in God. It's imputed to them. God gives us a status, or gives those who have faith in him, the status of being righteous. We first see this in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, this word could be blamelessness. The same as different phrasing to the other word righteous we just saw before. And if we want the full weight of it, we turn to Romans 1 and then Romans 4 and 5, uh, 3 and 4. But let's just look at Romans 1 uh, verse 17 for the sake of time. It says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What we see very clearly is that righteousness in God's eyes is not through what we do and say because we cannot do and say the right things. Our heart is corrupt to the core. It is whether we believe God and He imputes us the righteousness of Himself. Now, of course, in the Old Testament it was about believing in the coming Christ. In the New Testament, it's about believing in the Christ who has come. Noah, Abraham, Jesus said himself, Noah saw my day and longed for it. He longed to see my day. There is a sense that Noah and Abraham and David all had a teaching of a Messiah who was going to come and have a righteousness that was fully obedient to the whole law of God and in his death, or his salvation plan, that his status of righteousness and blamelessness would be put onto them. David believed it as he wrote in the Psalms, My Lord, that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Abraham believed it in that he believed God. Noah believes it in that he follows God's instructions in the insanity of building an ark for a hundred years waiting for a flood in a depraved
nation. What we see in the scriptures is that in order to walk with God, we must be blameless and righteous. They are prerequisite, prerequisites for walking with God. You cannot walk with God and not be righteous and blameless. The only means of being righteous and blameless is that we walk with God. We are saved by walking with God. We are saved to walk with God. If we need more evidence that we are imputed righteousness, that no one has it of their own, we just turn to two other passages in the New Testament, Hebrews 11.7 and then 2 Peter 2.5. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. It's stating very clearly there that it's only by faith. The reason that this passage right here in Genesis 6 9, it says that Noah was righteous and blameless was because by faith he trusted in God. He put his belief in God and followed God's commands. He had no righteousness of his own. It was given to him from God because of the future work of Christ. 2 Peter 2.5 reminds us that, that he is a herald of righteousness. It says, if, it did, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah as a herald of righteousness with seven others, others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Of the ungodly. The message that Noah preached in his day was righteousness by faith alone. The message we preach today is righteousness by faith alone. The scripture is not about legalism. We cannot uphold the law. It is very clear that we cannot uphold the law. The scriptures make that clear throughout the whole writings. The only means of Noah being righteous and blameless is through faith in God. And it's imputed to him. It's given him something he does not deserve or something he has not earned. It's given by God's miraculous work that we cannot comprehend or imagine the gift that he has poured out on us to give us that. This comparison of the righteous and blameless, the man who walks with God, the man of faith, is a comparison between the ones who do not believe in God. And those were the Nephilim of last week who believe in self, power, intelligence, renown, or have a worship of a false God. Now it's compared again, we go from Genesis, we go from speaking of Noah straight to Noah, the righteous, blameless man, walking with God, 
He, was, he wasn't able to design this on his own. God gives him instructions in verse 15 and 16, which I won't read out for the sake of time, details how this vessel of salvation will be uh, built. And God, just as God directs Moses in the wilderness of how to build a holy place, a temple or a tabernacle with different stages, and it says that God gave men the gifts and skills and wisdom to know how to do this. What we're seeing in Noah is a miraculous work of God's power that says, you don't know how to do this. I will give you the skills to do this. I will protect you in the midst of a corrupt and ruined world. God is the hero. God is the judge. And what's amazing about this is what God nearly always is protecting people from in the Old Testament is his own rock. When we read through the Psalms and we see, God, you are my refuge, you are my strong tower, you are my shelter. What do we need shelter from? What do we need refuge from? From the wrath of God himself. So here in this passage, the only reason Noah needs safety, the only reason Noah needs salvation is because God's wrath is going to be poured out. If we think about Israel in Egypt and the Passover land that they must kill and wipe over the door frames of their house, the only reason they needed that is because God's angel was going to sweep over and wipe out the firstborns. God's salvation is always a protection from his wrath. I think we often like to think that every evil that happens in the world is attributed to the devil. But the flood wasn't evil. The flood was just. And the flood was at the hand of God. The flood was at the hand of God. Yet God's promise is that he will have a people for himself. And always whether it be in the prophets, whether it be in Exodus, whether it be in the New Testament, his judgment follows with mercy. Mercy is always evident. I think of that great passage of Ephesians 2, which so reminds us that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you followed the prince of the power of the air, you're under judgment, pretty much says, and then in verse 4 it says, but God who is rich in mercy. All the way through the Old Testament, we can just grab that passage and, and put it over and see that passage in every passage as God is judging and pouring out wrath that says He is rich in mercy, that He will protect, He will preserve a people for Himself. After the detailing of the ark and the building structure of the ark, we see in verse 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life in the heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. This is a detailing of decreation. Throughout the scripture we see decreation happen a number of times. This is one of the greatest, well this is the only greatest decreation we see in the whole of scripture because God promises after this, which we'll look at in the next few weeks, that he will never do it again. Which he says he'll never deconstruct or decreate the whole of the world again, but he does decreate de nation after nation as they rebel from him. Every, every great nation throughout history has been decreated by God because of their pride. Pride that we think of Israel itself, Babylon, Assyria, Greeks, the Persians, the Romans, so forth, even to this day. 
A nation becomes too big and proud. A nation stands on their own glory and turns from God, and God decreates them to remind that He is the only King of Kings. So when we look at this, it is a decreation. The passage ends with a watery chaos, which brings us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The world, the world was without form, and water covered the earth. That is where we end up back at the end of this passage. Except there's only one difference in the, at the end of this passage, and that's there is an ark floating, preserving God's people. Verse 18, we see the first covenant. Unless you're Presbyterian, then you believe that Genesis 1 or 2 had the first covenant. But we see a covenant here in verse 18, and it says, But I will establish my covenant with you, speaking to Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. This is the first time we see a covenant made with God and man. The covenant right here hasn't got much details. The covenant is simply, I will preserve you. I will save you. Later, in chapter 9, verse 9 and 17, so probably next week's passage, we will look in depth at the covenant that God made with Noah. And covenants are important. Your Bible is split into two covenants, Old Testament and New. That's what they mean, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. God is consistently making a covenant that is a promise with his people in order to show that he is faithful to the very end of time. And when we look at the covenant to Noah, when we look at the covenant to Abraham, when we look at the covenant to David, we see very clearly that God has been faithful and provided all the way to Christ. And now we have the new covenant, the new covenant, the hope of the sufficient blood of Christ being poured out once and for all, for all mankind. And the promise is that we are washed clean, we're in His righteousness, we cannot be destroyed by death. We will be raised to life in Christ's resurrection. So covenants are important. The promise here is so simple. Take your wives and children, uh, and your children's wives and your sons' wives, and enter into the ark, and His promise is that they will be protected. Verse 19 to 21, man, uh, man continues their creation mandate. We see God charge uh, Noah to go and reserve, bring forth, preserve, sorry, protect the animals that He created. So the creation mandate is man will have dominion over them. So we see Noah continuing this creation mandate by bringing the animals into the ark, preserving them through the judgment. And some amazing, miraculous, once again, there's so much miraculous things that are going on that we don't see detail here, but Noah being able to herd up these animals must have been a miracle in itself. Verse 22, we see this reoccurring phrase, which is important to remember. Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. Here we see that Noah believed God. This is why it was counted to him as righteousness. Because he believed God and acted on what God said. A hundred years, he heard the promise of God a hundred years before the flood. And he believed God and endured. How did he endure? What sustained him? 
the Word of God as it does today? What causes people to endure it? What causes people to uh, persevere in suffering, in the midst of trial, in the midst of meaningless tasks like building an, an ark, building the biggest boat anyone's ever seen in a corrupt generation? It's the Word of God. His Word is certain. His covenants are always followed through. It brings us to our next point with God. When God says it is so, and look at this in Genesis 1. That great phrase God said, let there be light, and it was so. Well now, in reverse order, the decreation. Chapter 7, we go on to see it fulfilled. The Lord said to Noah, verse 1, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you his family and the animals that he told him. We see right here that God speaks forth a decreation upon the world. And now we're going to, sorry, we saw in chapter 6 that God spoke a decreation upon the world, and now we're going to see it fulfilled. It was so. Just as he said, let there be light, and it was so, now let there be a flood, and it will be so. God speaks to Noah about who should enter the ark, only his family. He tells him what to take, clean and unclean animals, that's animals they could eat, animals they couldn't eat. Uh, depending on what you understand uh, of theology. Here in verse 4 it tells us, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Once again we see that phrase in verse 5. But what we're seeing in this forty days and forty nights is often a period of judgment Noah, the writer, sorry, Moses, the writer of Genesis, would have been in the wilderness for 40 years at this time, experiencing great suffering and seeing similarities to what is going on in this world. As I said before, the promise was that God will never destroy or decreate a globe on a global scale, but He will do that to the nation. And He does that to the nation of Israel in their disobedience in the wilderness. God provides for them, he deconstructs, decreates Egypt, delivers them out of Egypt, and they whinge and complain and want to go back to their idols. So God says, this generation will not enter into my promised rest. And for 40 years, he decreates them until not even Moses was alive. And then they enter into the promised land. God's judgment is right and just, what we see very clearly in this passage. And Moses, as he probably penned down the story of Noah, saw similarities to his own experience and realised the justice of God was sufficient. But at the same time, he would be reminded that the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Psalm 29, verse 10. What an incredible verse to add in the scripture. That the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Even in the midst of the watery chaos coming back across the globe and wiping out every flesh, every animal, every being that is on the face of the earth, the Lord was there, sitting enthroned, calling the shots, sustaining life, preserving those on the ark, protecting them. You know, it's one thing to build an ark, it's another that floats. You ever build rafts as a kid and you're like, this is going to be the best thing ever, you put it out in the water and it sinks? That's all my rafts that I built. 
Noah must have been building this ark going, I hope this floats. For just like God sustains the Israelites through the wilderness, and it says your, your feet did not, your shoes did not even wear out. While they were in the wilderness, their garments didn't even wear out. So it was for this boat. That at first when the floodwaters came and it was like catastrophic, it says it burst forth from the deep. It wasn't just rain falling from the sky. This is apocalyptic stuff. From the deep water, it was like spraying up from the ground. This ark just floated to the top as debris and bodies would have been flying past. God preserves them as we see right here, just after, in verse 17 of chapter 7, and the Lord shut them in. The Lord shut them in. And the Lord shut them in. It's a reminder, if we go back to verse 11 and 12, we see this catastrophic, apocalyptic event, and 600 years, 500 years have gone by of Noah's life, and the second month, on the 17th day of the month. See the specific timing of Noah's uh, age? is evidence of the historical um, accuracy of this story. On that day, all fountains of the deep burst forth. That's apocalyptic language. It's coming from everywhere, coming down from the sky, up from the ground. And the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. The earth was decreated back to a watery chaos, and the Lord, in verse 16, shut them. Noah didn't shut them in. Noah didn't preserve life. God did. God had mercy on this boat. He made it float and he sealed it up that they would not be harmed by the water or the chaos that was going on outside them. Right at the end of this chapter we see that the waters triumph over the globe, or rather God's wrath triumphs. In verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth, the waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the waters. We can't miss these moments of God's grace. The ark floated. That's a good sign, because if it sunk, they were destroyed. This is a, a, a slight glimpse of God's beautiful mercy and grace as we read it, and it's often that in these narratives we miss these great lines of God's protective, powerful hand in these Miraculous stories of salvation. What we have in this story is this picture of deep creation judgment, yet are holding on to hope. These images and these narratives throughout the Old Testament are there for us to remember God's promises that He caused the ark to float across the wrath of God, the instrument of His wrath, water. Just as we have the story of the plague of death in Egypt and the Passover lamb that is painted on the doors of the house for the Egyptians is a reminder for us once again that the angel of death will pass over those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in the ark were saved. For those who have the blood of the lamb covering them were saved. For those who have the blood of Christ are saved, are preserved. The ark is in many ways an image of the Holy of Holies. They were in the presence of God. They were reserved, they were protected, they were able to be where God was. Just like the tabernacle later is created, 
where only we can enter in through the blood of the Lamb, today we enter in through the blood of Christ. This story is one of great hope for mankind. This story is one of joy in many ways. Although we shouldn't paint the ark and the picture of the ark with happy talking animals and crystal clear water and a rainbow, we should see the weight of depravity and the weight of God's judgment, yet the hope of Christ. As we are reminded throughout the scripture that Christ will take in the floodwaters of God's wrath and consume them on our behalf. Micah 7.19 tells us this, He will again have compassion on us. I love that phrase, He will again. If you've read the whole Old Testament up to Micah, you will understand why it says again. Because the Israelites are so disobedient that God continues to have compassion on His people, continues to save a remnant for Himself. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities under foot. foot. That is what Christ has done. He's treaded our iniquities under His feet. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Christ is the one who consumes the floodwaters of God's wrath for us on our behalf and gives us His blameless status so that we, like Noah, can walk with God. Yet all the more intimately because the Holy Spirit Spirit dwells within us. This is a story that reminds us that we don't enter into an ark that's going to float on the waters, but the Holy Spirit enters into us and we become the temple of the living God. We are invited in. Children of God. Christ consumes the floodwaters of God's wrath on our behalf. We'll just read the last couple of verses. 22 to 24. Picture of total destruction. Everything on the dry dry land in whose nostrils was breath of life he blotted out everything. Living, uh, every living thing that was on the face of the ground, and man, animal, animal creeping things, and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. You see clearly that this flood was successful in its judgment, in completely wiping out every living thing, and we have this phrase, it was blotted out. A reminder of Revelation which talks about the book of life. That anyone who's been written in it cannot be blotted out. A reminder that God has preserved a people before the foundations of the earth. We sung about it before. We taught it in Ephesians. We remember in Genesis as we see these promises foretold that those who are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world will never be blotted out. Will never be blotted out. And once again, we are reminded of the mercy as we see a, the deflated world, a deconstructed world. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. This is a reminder of God's character, his attributes. He's holy beyond any comprehension. He's just. And his justice, or his just judgment, on the world is that those who sin 
should surely die. Yet God is patient and merciful and gracious. He bears with us who are constantly wandering. He bears with Israel and he makes promises to bring salvation. We have a great hope, a greater hope than an ark that floated upon the waters of God's rock. We have Christ Jesus who consumed God's rock in form. We stand in victory, holy and blameless, righteous before God. And we walk in his spirit, that is, we walk with God day after day. Noah in his day in a ruined and corrupt generation was a herald of righteousness. That means he lived in obedience to God and had faith in God and he proclaimed that righteousness in God is only fulfilled through faith. The same should be true for us. We live in a ruined and corrupt world. We have been made righteous not through our own merit but through Christ alone. And we should herald righteousness by faith alone to a corrupt and broken world. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we uphold you as our Lord and Saviour. We think of your holiness and how far above you are. We think of your, your ways that are higher than the heavens are above the earth and your thoughts that are the same. Far above the earth, Lord. Lord, let us be humbled by the story of salvation that you preserved your people. We are here today because you kept Noah from being destroyed, Noah and his family. You promised that you'd never decreate this world again. The promise that you've been faithful to. You brought salvation to your people in a way that you could never comprehend or imagine in the sacrifice of your son. Who, although was perfect in every way, who was in the full weight of the word righteous and blameless. And Lord, who was with you, walked with you all the days of all eternity past. Lord, he bore your full wrath for us. And we take on, we have been given, imputed his full righteousness, blamelessness. So we approach you as those who approach in righteousness and blamelessness, entering into the Holy of Holies, entering into your presence through prayer and the reading of the word, we will be, be sustained by your word in the midst of a ruined and corrupt generation. Will we be heralds of righteousness? Proclaiming Christ and faith in Christ, the only means of salvation, the only means of avoiding your world. We thank you for your love and mercy, Lord, and for your word that teaches us. We pray this in Jesus' name.